On this episode, I talked to Kent and Alexis Christie. Kent is different than any of the previous six people that I have interviewed on this podcast series since his issue started when he was 18 months old, when his parents were told that he had cancer behind one of his eyes. He talks about thoughts of committing suicide and his book, Journey into Blindness, and his wife, Alexis, talks about how he was after he lost his vision. I used to call Kent Clark Kent, as in Superman, so I thought it would be appropriate to start the podcast with the song Superman by Five for Fighting. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Dennis. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Is your beautiful wife there with you? Hi, Dennis. Yeah, I just, I don't know that I'm so beautiful, but um, I'm here. We've okay, glad to talk to up. you guys. Glad to talk to you guys. Kent, you, you are different than the previous six people that I've interviewed because your issue started at your birth. So could you describe what happened? Okay, what happened? Uh, when I was 18 months old, my mother noticed an anomaly in my right eye. There was the way light hit it and all. So fortunately, red flashes or red sparkles. But fortunately, my mom was alert and she got me to a doctor. And the doctor sent me to an, uh, an, an eye doctor. Uh, the eye doctor took one look and uh, sent us down to Will's Eye Hospital. I had a malignant tumor on the optic nerve. So I had the operation. They had to remove the optic nerve and the eye. And back then they used the uh, radioactive pellets. Uh, they left them in the cavity. They, they put a ball type fixture in there to uh, retain the, uh, the, the fake eye which was a plastic eye, actually. But the radiation pellets dissolved over a period of a couple months. And that's one of the reasons my brain has some problems at times, because that, all that radiation must have destroyed some part of it. I don't, I don't know. Right. Anyway, so I was blind in the right eye, from the time I, I was able to talk or to, to understand. So I never had this, this sense of, of two eyes. I, I only had vision through one eye and it never really bothered me that much. Um, although I, I did have problems with the, with the, of course they called them a glass eye. It wasn't glass. It was actually some sort of composition, 
but um, you know, of people staring at me, and it took me a while to adjust, but it made me very sensitive to looking at people. I had a hard time just looking at people because I was always aware that I had this this eye that was fake. But uh, I managed to get through school. And as I got older and realized that most people really didn't even notice that I had the, the, the fake eye. The when, you were, when you were younger, when you went to school, did you wear glasses? No, not initially. I didn't start wearing glasses till... When did I? You know, <laughs> I don't remember. I think it was uh, probably around fifth or sixth grade. And did children treat you differently? Did they tease you? Uh, back when I was younger, I, as I mentioned in my book, if my mother and the teacher had explained to the kids, especially in first and second grade, uh, what my affliction was, uh, I would have been a lot better off but then again maybe it wouldn't have been better off maybe i would have had more questions but you know kids would just look at me and say what's the matter with your eye um, right but uh, that seemed to go away as i got older and the kids got older so uh, it but it still created a sense of of i just didn't have com confidence I would uh, have a hard time looking at people uh, because I didn't Screen want them staring at me. Did that affect your self-esteem? Yes, it did. It did. It um, and my parents weren't. Uh, you know, I didn't. My family was. My mom was a Pennsylvania Dutch, brought up twelve children, and my dad. He was. Um, um, it was my dad, but I really didn't have the uh, the push and drive when I was young uh, to uh, excel. Uh, I just wanted to have fun. That was, you know, that was my whole life having fun. And um, and then the trauma that this really set me back. I was 15, my brother was 14, and unfortunately, he developed leukemia, and he died at 14, and I, at 15, I really didn't understand what was wrong with him. I was told he was anemic, but it just kept getting worse and worse, and finally, at the hospital, his pneumonia took him out, but it was... How many siblings did you... Do you just have the one, just a oh, brother? Wow. Uh, but you know, we were extremely close at 15 and 14. We did everything together. Uh, so that was that was a trauma that um, it changed my whole perspective on death. Uh, some people may think that I'm extremely cold in that. I mean, uh, I sympathize in when people die, but I don't have the same, uh, I don't know, emotional trauma that, that people have. In fact, the, the, what I went through, uh, it's hard to believe when I tell you know, people, I don't tell many people this, but 
To this day, I have never visited my brother's grave. In fact, in most of my thinking and most of my thoughts of the past, I have eliminated my brother. And the few times that I do remember and start to think about him, even at the age I am now, uh, it upsets me. So you're protecting yourself from being hurt? Yeah, and, yeah. pretty much so. And like I said, I've never visited his grave. I've almost eliminated all our past from my 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 past thoughts. I, uh, when I think of, the, of of things that happened in the past, he very rarely ever comes up. Do you, was he your best friend? Yes, he was. Because, like I said, we we did everything together. You know, we played together. Everything. And, although with the one eye, he was very good at sports. A very good baseball player. But I had problems when I was, you know, at the first beginnings of Little League. Uh, what was I, eight years old or nine years old? And they would stick me out in the outfield. And when you don't have depth perception, a fly ball would come to me. And, and I could not put myself where the ball was going to be. And so people would yell at me, catch the ball, catch the ball. I can't, I want to catch it. I just can't get to it. I don't know where, how to get to it. But um, but your brother would stick up for you then. Yeah, to some extent. But as I, as I, as I got older, I was able to better adjust to that. And I could play the infield. I started playing infield. And I was doing quite well in the infield. I was very good on ground balls and, and flies. You know, I, I was getting pretty decent at that. But what, what I had to, the adjustment that you have to make, if you don't have depth perception, you only have one eye, is that you come to the realization that once you understand what the object is and the size of the object, you can judge distance and speed. Did your parents treat you any differently than your brother? No, no, no. We were pretty much treated the same. How did this affect your studies? Um, I had a hard time concentrating on... My concentration was pretty poor. I could, you know, I could uh, get through and, you know, get C's and low B's. and But like I said, there was no incentive at home to, to do better. Maybe if I was pushed harder, I could have done better. I always thought that I was fairly intelligent. Um, my ability to figure things out and to, uh, you know, uh, mechanically, I, I, you know, I always I was a DIY person. I always fixed everything. I worked on my cars. In fact, I was in the automotive industry for my whole life. And I never had problems in you know, beguiling anything. I could always figure out how to make things work. But um, as far as the, and that was another thing that kept me back because of that. It kept me back from excelling in my job and because Quite frankly, I couldn't spell. I was a horrible speller. 
And because I couldn't spell, I was always too embarrassed to do anything where I was going to write things down and people would see how horrible a speller I was. Did this affect you when you had in the, in the now we're going into when you were in the workplace, did that affect your job? Were you treated differently because of it your It affected disability? my job in that as, as I became eligible to become manager in a few of our stores, uh, it had become a little hard. But one thing I did realize that and I, fa I asked other people who had trouble spelling. Um, and I found out that the bulk majority of person, and uh, they spell by recognizing the, the word. Um, and words started coming easier for me to, to, to handle when I started reading more regularly. Uh, I wasn't a reader when I was young. I had too many other things to do rather than read. Oh, read? I don't read. Um, but as I, uh, when I actually, uh, not until I was in my 40s, did I start to actually start to read on a regular basis. And by reading on a regular basis and reading familiar words, they became words that were easy to spell because I recognized them. Do you think that you had to train your brain based on what happened at your birth? Um, there was some training. Like I said, I had to learn. It took me a while before I, I learned that knowing the object and the size of the object, I could judge the distance and speed. And once I did that, um, I still, if you threw something at me that I didn't know what it was, I would very, I, I wouldn't catch it. I would, tr I, I just couldn't figure out where, how fast it was coming or, and how it got there. But you, you throw something to me that I recognize and I have no problem catching it. But were uh, you, at, at times for you, when you were in public, did you try to be, to blend in with the crowd because you didn't want people to notice you? Uh, I always, I, I, I had friends. I always had good friends. Uh, I was always able to blend in. Unfortunately, I, I have the personality that seems to, seems to always to have adopted uh, personalities like Dennis Delp. Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I always used to be able to, even through school, it seemed like every bad guy in school was the type of person that I would, I would uh, sort of uh, wander over to. I, I missed the word there. Um, but, uh, and so I had a lot of interesting friends, but unfortunately some of them were... <laughs> crazy people so to speak right but uh, Where, and you know, because and, and I I went through school the easiest way I could get through the and not being continually associated with the more academic students the ones who were striving to achieve uh, I was with the group of people that we just want to get out of this shit Um 
So that was a, that was a definite setback. Uh, I, and I think some of it was uh, caused by the, the early stages of my life where I, I lacked the ability to have confidence because I always felt that, you know, I was inferior. People were staring at me and I had a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, inability to, to really get involved with I, people. Not until I, not until I got out and started working regularly and meeting people and getting to know people uh, that I started coming out of that situation. Um, and now I was, you know, right now I, I relate very well with people. Uh, I and unfortunately now is that when I relate to academics, most of my friends are PhDs, and like I said, my wife has a master's degree. Um, she was a teacher, uh, and uh, if I had been involved, maybe if I had taken a chance or had been pushed by my parents to go into a more academic program in school, maybe things would have been a little different. Did they, after the, the death of your brother, do you think that they didn't push you enough because of his passing? It's Did possible. They gave me more leadway. Um, my dad was a car salesman. He was a real estate, um, sold real estate. And he was, uh, he was uh, unfortunately, had a lot of girlfriends. Mm. So a lot of time he wasn't home. Uh, I didn't get the, it wasn't until I started playing golf at that he would drag me around to all his cronies because I, I, I could kill a, a golf ball. Uh, I, he wanted me to uh, really get more involved. And, but then I got involved in race cars and stopped playing golf for a while. But I was, uh, I was, when I was, when I was uh, just in the uh, like 16, 17, 18, and even 19 and playing golf on a regular basis, I was quite good. And an old guy that I played with, uh, he had, he gave me the best when I was, I always could hit a ball a ton, but keeping it from slicing and hooking was a major problem. Well, this old guy I played with a few times, he, you know, he stopped me and he said, you know what? You're not playing baseball. This is golf. This isn't baseball. And I thought, well, he said, that's, you know, he says, you could, you look at just about everybody that slices their hook and they're swinging the golf club like a baseball bat. It doesn't work. And the one thing he told me that absolutely straightened my drives out, never hooked or, or sliced again, was he said, always think of your swing as the face of the clock. As long as you think of the face of the clock and bring your club up and across your body, straight across, you're never going to hook or slice. And that's true. Never did. In fact, I hadn't played golf in 25 years, and I we um, AC Delco. We used to you know, we used to get free tickets to the races. We were down at Dover, and they needed an extra person for a, a tournament, that golf tournament that AC Delco was running. And there was like 
I forget, 45, 48 people there. And it was a staggered start. I hadn't played golf in 25 years. My score related to it. But yet, <laughs> yet having all these guys who were regular golfers, I won the long drive contest. How about that? Yeah, I hit the ball longer than all those regular golfers. So let's get to your lovely wife, Alexis. Where is when she? did you when did you meet her? Oh, I met her. I I was married for fourteen years, and my first wife. I was more of a social creature. She wasn't, and it just we just weren't working out. So I we divorced, and I had. A friend of ours uh, worked at Thomas and Betts where uh, Lexus worked, and they had sponsored a rafting trip up there. At um, you know, they rafted down the Lehigh down to Jim Thorpe. I'm trying to think what the name of that group was, but anyway, I went up with them, and Lexus was there, and she had just left a long-term relationship, and I just, you know, she just. I just dazzled her, I guess. She just Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's keep you quiet for a little bit. Uh Alexis, what did you think of Kent when you first saw him? Um since I had been in a 20-year relationship and I was out of it for a month, the last thing I was doing was looking for a partner. You know, so we just I was up there rafting with other people in my company cuz a group went up one of them knew Kent's friend or was related to Kent's friend and we wound up in the same boat. And at the end of the rafting trip, uh, someone said, hey, we're going out to um, eat. Do you wanna come with us? So I said, sure, I got nothing to do. And so we went out to eat. And then the girl said, it's 11 o'clock at night, you can't drive home. Cause this, I lived in Northern New Jersey. So it would have been the better part of a two hour drive. So I stayed at her house overnight and, um, you know, a couple weeks later, the girl I worked with said, Kent wants your phone number. Can I give it to him? So we did. And we met in Flemington, which was about midway, had a little food and talked a bit. And then I met him at a go-kart track a weekend soon thereafter. And uh, the relationship developed from there. Had you and ever like met... Had you ever met anybody who had vision problems? Not particularly that I know of. And, and um, Kent, Kent was very coordinated. He was very bright. He was knowledgeable. He was excessively polite to me. Um, you know, and over time, we really grew to be really good friends and love each other. And then when did you guys marry? Um, 1989. No, okay. yes, at 1989. And, and then uh, we, we, uh, my uh, company was sponsoring a cruise for our best customers. And Alexis thought, ah, we're going to get married in, on, the on the boat, but on the ship. I guess anything bigger than 60 feet, I guess you or 100 feet is a ship, whatever. Uh, but anyway, the cruise ship that we were on would not marry us. So Alexis 
made all the preparations and we married in Bermuda. At the Registrar General. And that was an interesting thing because you had to apply weeks in advance. You had to pay a very hefty uh, fee for the license. And um, they put it, published it in the paper two week, every day for two weeks prior to the marriage. And so when we got there and got off the boat, everybody in Bermuda knew there was a bride coming off the boat. And um, yeah, so we got greeted and, you know, all kinds of great stuff. And plus we had all my customers come with us. So we had like 17 people come with us to the Surgeon General. So we had a regular group of people at our marriage. Yeah, it was fun. And we, um, then we stopped at a place to um, have a drink on the way back to the boat. And so everybody that was there that came to the wedding, you know, had a, had a drink with us. And then we went back to the boat. And two days later, the boat people put a party together for us. So they had a big cake and invited all the people that were on that um, in that section of the cruise. So some of the people I knew, some didn't, some were from the travel agency. And so we had a five-day wedding celebration. It was fun. Um, the one good thing is nobody was over drinking because nobody wanted to be, have a hangover and deal with, you know, motion sickness because of the boat. And uh, it was just a wonderful five-day celebration. The uh, ship and my, uh, my boss uh, got us a, a stateroom up on the promenade deck. Uh, so we had big windows so we could see the sunset, the sunrise over the ocean. Uh, it was really nice. But uh, Destination wedding before they were popular. <laughs> anyway, in Bermuda, they're real snobs. English, Alexis had her, her dress. She actually made her wedding dress. And she was, because it was long, she was hiking it up and exposing her lower, her knee, uh, just a little bit above her knee as she was walking. And cars were coming by and honking the horn. <laughs> Drop that dress. <laughs> no, yeah, they didn't like me holding it up. And of course, I was holding it up to my knee so I wouldn't trip in the long gown as we're walking along the street. <laughs> Interesting cultural differences. Yeah. But so much fun. And so much good stuff. Kent, when did, weather. Kent, when did you start to have issues with your other eye? Uh, back when I, I guess I was 63. I started having problems initially, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Uh, my eyelid wouldn't stay open. I had to tape my eyelid up. I was thinking of going to have my the surgery to have the eyelid shortened or compressed. I forget what the surgery is called. But then the vision started going a little bit funky too. And when I finally went to an ophthalmologist, he looked there and he said, you know, it's not looking good. So he sent me right over to the hospital to the get an MRI. No, well, he sent me over to Grandview first to get an MRI. And the MRI showed that there was a mass there, something growing. And that's when we went down to Will's eye. It's called a mengenoma. And it's probably caused by the radiation from 1948. 
cause a slow growing non-malignant tumor and um, wouldn't know you have it until it puts pressure on something critical like the vision to the other eye. And when it put pressure on that other optic nerve, Kent went dark. Wow. Yeah, I had an op the operation where they, you know, opened my head up. I have a titanium plate up there. Uh, I was hoping that once they cleared the menginoma away from the optic nerve, that maybe the optic nerve would recover. But unfortunately, it didn't. They couldn't really do much with the menginoma because it was up in the cavernous sinuses and it was entangled around the carotid artery and all the nerves coming up on that same stem. So there was nothing they could do. A menginoma tumor is not like a mass, like, um, you know, like a, a mass that you could take out like a ball. It's a little here and a little there and it grows on the surface of the brain is what it was doing and into those the sinuses and the different um positions within the yeah, the, it's, the um brain it's, and the it's off head. of the middle layer of the protective layer of the brain the arachnoid layer. arachnoid layer if you or anyone that you know has a story that you or they would like to share with me please reach out to me via facebook I would really love to hear your story about how you overcame adversity. Hey, most of you know that I wrote a book, but for those who don't, my book is called As Far As The Eye Can See. It depicts my struggle while losing my vision. It is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Now, back to the podcast. Um, you know, like a, a mass that you could take out, like a ball. It's a little here and a little there, and it grows on the surface of the brain is what it was doing, and into those the sinuses and the different um, positions within the yeah, the, it's, it's, the um, brain. It's, and the it's off head. of the middle layer of the protective layer of the brain, the arachnoid layer. Arachnoid layer. This was 60 years that it developed? Uh, I don't know how long it developed, but that radiation did cause it to develop. It's well, slow growing and, and um, you know, until it hits something, many people die never knowing they had a menginoma tumor. And it often occurs after lots of radiation, whether it's dental or in his case, radiation um, pellets that he was given in 1948. Let me, let me go back, Kent. Did you eventually then get a glass eye? Yeah, well, it's not glass. It's actually, it's more of like a plastic. Um, it's an acrylic of some acrylic, sort. Acrylic, yeah. And did you have to get a couple of them? Like over the years, I've, actually, uh, I've only ever had three of them. Okay. And it's interesting; some of them were so good, people hardly knew. Very few people knew he had an eye missing. That he grew up with only one eye. It was wow. really the the doctor that did it uh, when well, he was younger was really really the good. The way the the socket was uh, was rebuilt at Will's eye. 
uh, I would actually had movement in that eye. So, you know, it wasn't full movement, but at least the eye moved to the fact that it, it, people thought, well, it must be a real one. Hmm. Did you have pain before they realized the tumor in your good eye? No. No, Did the you... only thing I had was the, uh, the erratic vision that uh, got to the point where I had to um, stop driving and eventually I had to stop working. I couldn't work no longer, you know, for what I was doing. You can't ask somebody, hey, can you read that, that there for me? I can't read it. And, my, you know, it doesn't mean magnifiers didn't work. Uh, so, you know, I had to I had to quit. Yeah, Could I don't you... think anything was on pain nerves when he was um, 18 months old. Um, and it was only because of his astute mom and astute doctor that noticed this red glimmer occasionally in his eye and no, i meant i meant when he was 63 did you feel any pain no okay right How now could... right now <laughs> i have pain uh i have a, a trigeminal neuralgia now the trigeminal nerve my trigeminal nerve has been corrupted uh we have to do um We've been trying different things. Eventually, uh, the most radical thing to is, is to get a brain operation to either sever part of the nerve, take away the pain part of the nerve. Uh, I don't know. There's a bunch of options that possibly could be done. But the whole left side of my face is numb. And I get what? spikes of pain that are just crippling. Is that the side where you had the vision in your eye for all those years? Yep. Okay. Could you describe the surgery, how long it was, what the aftermath was of it? Oh, what, the original one or the one that, that tried to free the uh, optic nerve? Yeah, your most recent one when you were 63. Well, it was five and a half hours of surgery. They literally you know, cut a hole in my brain. And of course, there were a lot of bats that flew out. But Anyway, they, they had to go in, move the brain, and go down there and try to, you know, uh, Dr. Evans down there, who's one of the top uh, brain surgeons in the country. And Jefferson, James Evans. Yeah, he just, he said the, uh, the mengenoma is like a weed. It's, uh, it's, it's just, you, you can't, you, there's a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, he removed as much of it as he could. But like I said, it didn't uh, allow the nerve to come back, the optic nerve to come back. He still well, had some sight when he had that surgery, but the optic nerve was too damaged and continued to deteriorate. Over how long of a period of time did it deteriorate to the point? Well, where I, went from, I went from, um, well, from 63 when I first started having problems to early 66 when I had the operation, by the end uh, uh, by the end of 66, I was totally blind. How did that make you feel? Well, I, 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 in my book, I had mentioned the fact that I went through a long period of, of fairly deep depression. You know, I had given one eye already, uh, I, I just had so many things I had planned 
that I wanted to do once I retired. I wanted to work to about 75. I would have still been working. But it just, uh, eventually I had to, to come to the realization that, do I really want to end my life? Do I want to terminate my life? Uh, uh, but, you know, what would that do to, uh, you know, guilt? That's what I used as a, a trigger to bring me out of it. You know, if you take your life, um, it's the guilt factor. You know, if you die, people go through periods of grief. But if you commit suicide or take your own life, it's no longer grief. It's, it's what could I have done? It's people just go through a, why, why couldn't I stop it? Why couldn't I have helped him? What, what could I have done? You know, you've added, you've added exponentially to the grief of the people that you love. And for that fact, I was able to get out of my continuous depression. I still go through periods, but I was able to get out of it, coming to the realization that life was given to me. And even though I'm having problems, do I really want to take that gift away? And that was the reason why I was able to, to continue on. I just... Just, what got you to that point? What got me to that point? Mm -hmm. Well, like I what, said, the realizing that had I taken my life, what would I have done to the people I love? They would, you know, like I said, grief is one thing, but if you add grief onto to the, the guilt. guilt, that's that adds a whole new. Uh, aspect onto it and i couldn't do that to the people i loved did you go for any therapy yes i've been to uh therapy yes i i have i have gone to, to a bunch of sessions and um they have helped but the basic the most help is the help that you can contribute to individually to yourself um they allowed me to talk and to express my concerns which was good something i wouldn't normally have opened up to alexis that was good but um i still think that well maybe not maybe just the ability to talk to someone who wasn't somebody you know you don't like to talk to like your wife or, or, or your mother or parents or try to tell them your true feelings or, you know, how you feel. Uh, so that, in that respect, yes, it helped. Therapy helped. I Alexis, uh, what was he like when he lost his vision? Oh, for two years, he was angry. Every other word was a four-letter word. He couldn't find comfort in anything. And I didn't realize he was thinking of suicide. And then one day he came to me and said, hey, Alexis, this depression stuff is not fun. I'm not going to be depressed anymore. And he literally flipped a switch. And then he started living again and la laughing again and being the Kent I knew. And it's interesting because with depression, he had what I call situational depression. And he could change it. It was not a chemical depression like some people have. Did you tell him to get help? 
along the line, I think it was after that, that we went for help. I, I was thinking it would probably just be a good idea for him to talk to somebody. And we were part of some networking groups in the area because I'm a massage therapist and we were networking for my business. And there was a social worker there. And so we got in connection with him, with her, with her and Kent and um, Sue really hit it off and it was good. And so he did that for about nine months, which was very beneficial. How did that affect you, Alexis, when he was like that? When he was depressed? Yes. Well, there was a lot on my plate and it was frustrating, but I understood where he was coming from. And then one day when he said he wasn't going to be depressed, a week or so later, he said, I think I'll write a book. So I called him on it. And together, um, he was dictating and I was administrative assistant. And he put together the book called Journey into Blindness. And that was probably the most healing thing we ever could have done because he had to relive all of those experiences and work them out. And um, he had to learn how to work with me. He'd say something one way and I'd write it down. And then when I'd read it back to him, he'd be mad and said, I didn't say that. And I would say, gee, Kent, I don't care if we have to write it 20 times. Tell me what you want it to say and I'll change it. And eventually the book came out. So it took us about seven months writing the book, which was healing for him because it was reliving all those experiences. And I'll tell you who did, you know, remember Ellen down at the center? Yes, yes. Ellen was an incredible help. She uh, took my manuscript and helped correct words, uh, put proper words in sentences that uh, made better sense or made the sentence more comprehensive. And uh, she did a heck of a job. She was, um, uh, she was marvelous. She was understanding and she was part of the Bucks County Association for the Blind and did this, donated her own time to Kent to help him edit his book. Kent, how did that make you feel reliving what happened to you? Did it, did it affect, not, did, not, did it affect you emotionally, but it make you tear up at times thinking where you are now and what you were like at that point, at your lowest point in your life? Uh, no, actually it didn't. It uh, brought back memories, uh, but I don't think it, uh, the only part that, uh, the only part that I really had problems with was, uh, the part that I had mentioned my brother. That always, that's always a bad subject for me. But when by bringing it out and reliving it is a healing process. Absolutely. When you know, did I always you... wanted to be, I always wanted to uh, drive race cars, but I couldn't drive you know, with one eye uh, without having that. It's okay. But I did uh, eventually, uh, I started racing uh, ra uh, carts. Go karts. Yeah, well, you know, more than a go kart, they're, they're racing carts. And I raced them for a while, uh, quite a while. Um, I had, uh, I ran a, a 100cc Yamaha engine, you know, blue printed, 20 horsepower. And uh, 
you could really fly around corners. I'll tell you what. <laughs> you cannot believe how hard you can go through a corner with one of those suckers. Well, it amazes me because they're three quarters of an inch off the ground and they can go at least 60 miles an hour. Well, yeah, you ever, mine was. Uh, Alexis, have you ever driven one? No, but I did do some flagging when he was at one of the um, one of the venues. And so for that whole summer, I think I helped them flag. But it amazed me how someone with only one eye and no depth perception could be competitive. And he came in third for the season at that racetrack. It is incredible if you think about it. It really is incredible. What can, when did you start to go to the uh, Bucks County Association for the Blind? Uh, when did I start that, Lex? I don't know, but somehow in this procedure, we were looking around and you just don't go to the Bucks County Association of the Blind. You kind of apply and um, they you get an appointment with a doctor and they evaluate you and recommend whether or not you can um, attend. And of course, then they did. And he did that for a long time. We also applied for a service dog at the... Um, Newtown? No. Uh, no. Uh, Mar in Marstown, the seeing eye, Marstown, New Jersey. And I grew up near there, so I was very familiar with that organization. And they sent someone out to walk them around the neighborhood. And she said, oh, you'll have no problem getting a dog. And his neurosurgeon and his doctor and um, a friend and another professional all agreed that he should have the dog. And so we were all excited about getting a service dog when I got an email the next week from the from uh, the seeing eye in Morristown, New Jersey, saying, oh, he doesn't qualify because he doesn't have a regular destination. He doesn't have a job and he doesn't have a volunteer position, so he doesn't qualify. Now, that, of course, made us very angry, and I know it was because he was of his age as opposed to you know, what they were saying, because lots of people get service dogs and they don't go out to a regular job. They just discriminated in his age. And we could then have applied to a place in Long Island or a couple other um, organizations that supply service dogs, but he got his iPhone and he can do everything with his iPhone that he wanted. He could say, hey, Siri, walk me to blah, blah, blah restaurant. Hey, Siri, walk me home. And it would tell him, go five more steps and take a right onto this lane or whatever. So, you, go on. Kent, do you do that? Do you go out by yourself in your neighborhood? I haven't for a while now. I have to get back out walking again. Um, uh, it's, I, what I, I was having a lot of problems getting lost and then having to consult the uh, the phone to find out where the heck am I? But uh, one of the who was that? Um, oh darn it! Oh darn CJ? it! Uh, no, no, no! I'm just trying to think of the name down at the center. Oh, oh I'm getting up and out of the center too long. Anyway, um, the guy that has all the trains. Mm, I don't know. Anyway, uh, he's talking about the Bucks County Association yeah, of Blind Center. Anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't know. He had mentioned to me 
we were uh, that you know you know on your phone you have a um, GPS. Well, not the GPS. You have a compass. And I said, yeah, I do, don't I? And so by using the compass, I can stand at the, because, you know, the, the handicap areas at the curves now generally do face the opposite curve. There for a while they weren't. But if I stand right in the middle of, the, of there, uh, orientate myself with the curve on the, you know, the regular curve, and I can point the phone across and get a compass heading. And that way I can walk on that compass heading instead of walking the wrong direction and winding up I don't know where. Uh, if I stay on the compass heading, I can get across the street to the next curb. And that's I good. Uh, um, for many years, the ramps at the corners, some of them were parallel and perpendicular to the roads, but some of them went diagonally into the intersection. And that's what would get him lost. He'd pick the one that went diagonally into the intersection and then he'd wind up on the wrong road and wind up in the wrong place and be stuck. Well, Kent, do you also cook, right? Truck? You also cook, right? Oh, I cook all the time, yes. Describe how that goes. Uh, I was cooking. I always been. Uh, I always like to cook. If you like to eat, you learn how to cook. And uh, I uh, have no problem at all doing. I can do stews. I can do soups. I can do uh, uh, different types. Anything that could be done up on top. And I can do things in the. I can't do. We just cooked it. I roast. Alexis cooked it. I can't. I guess if I got a talking thermometer, I could probably do it. One that would tell me what the temperature was. But anyway, uh, I do salads. I prepare vegetables. Uh, I have all my fingers. And you know, once you know the technique for cutting, uh, it's no problem at all. I mean, I can, I can slice and dice with the best of them because you don't have to look at what you're cutting as long as you know what you're doing. You know, I just, I can run right down the different carrots, uh, celery, you know, cucumbers. That doesn't matter what it is. I can just slice right on down. And, you know, the secret is, of course, you're sliding, you're using the side of your uh, knuckles there between your two knuckles. And the other secret is you always angle the knife slightly away, just a little bit away so that if there is a mistake, you're not going to slice into you, you know, you just, okay. But, and you also fix engines too, right? Well, I, I can fix things. If, if things that I recognize, I did uh, put the, the uh, new sink in the uh, kitchen. Uh, the had faucet. To the faucet. I had to, you know, take the, uh, take down the, um, Oh, my brain goes funky. Uh, we had a hose break. I had the faucet already. I was thinking I needed to do it, but I was trying to get the, you know, tell myself that, you know, I've done it before. Why can't I do it when I'm blind? So uh, I I did it. I, you know, I, you have to take the garbage disposal down and out, you know, crawl in underneath there and start removing things uh, and then putting everything back together. 
It's amazing. It did take them three days. And the hardest part was breaking the um, the bolts on the old well, faucet to get that off. One of the, I think, you know, I had to use a, a, a channel lock pliers to loosen the, uh, you know, the plastic nuts that retain the, the, uh, the fixture. And I must have nicked the threads on one. And you know what? I could not break that sucker. I just banged on it, could not break it. Eventually, I just got really mad. There was just enough air. I went downstairs, got my hacksaw, and sold it off. I, <laughs> I said, that's it. It's down. It's, I'm finished. Yeah, you know, that, that was the only thing that took a little time. Can't do a full three days. But It's an amazing because we recently had some plumbing work done, and the plumber, quite experienced, was amazed because he said the hardest part to do is get the old one off. And he was absolutely amazed that Kent could do it. Yeah, that is that of, is very impressive. Well, you know, a lot of people are too afraid to take the garbage disposal off. Wait, Kent, do you still go for regular checkups? Uh, not for the eye, but um, yeah, I go to... Uh, Primary care. Primary care. And I have to start, uh, I have to go find somebody. Uh, I may have to go down to Jefferson and see what they, uh, if they can do anything for my trigeminal neuralgia. Well, the one thing he does is, yes, he does get regular care. Once a year, he gets an MRI to check on the status of the tumor, and that gets reviewed by his Jefferson neurologist. So um, he is getting care, just that he doesn't have to go that often because relatively he's pretty healthy. Describe the effects of what you're going through now with the brain and the numbness in your face. How's that affecting you? Well, it, um, you know, you ever see that Bill Crosby routine where he, he talked about the Novocaine when he was coming from the dentist and he was going, well, and trying to eat and everything was falling out of his mouth? Yes. Well, the whole left side of my mouth and jaw are numb. And <laughs> I, uh, I, need, I need at least two or three napkins when I eat. And this is more recent. This is only in the last couple months. And we're trying all kinds of alternatives to the brain surgery because that's very dangerous. Um, so we're looking at various nutritionals to support nerves and he tried some acupuncture and we're going to try some uh, Chinese herbal medicines, but we are not eliminating going back to the neurosurgeon because he too would suggest can't do everything you can first before we try some surgery. Is this all related to the tumor in the eye? Not necessarily. They don't know what causes no, trigeminal neuralgia. Yeah. The one thing is that as you get older, uh, you're, blood vessels become a little calcified and they can start to rub on the nerve and that can cause it. And Kent has a posture um, of looking time. down and uh, bending his shoulders down. And, you know, if you have vision, you're looking out where you're walking. But if you have no vision, you kind of just drop your head. And so we think posture has a bit to do with it as well, because the pressure is probably at the brain stem as it comes out the skull. It could be that. We don't know. We don't know for sure. Let me backtrack again. 
when you had the surgery at 63, you had told me you had a scar well, on your 66, face. I had the surgery. 66. You had a scar on your face. How did that affect you emotionally being out in public? Like, did well, people stare it, at unfortunately, you? The, my hairline covers it. Oh, okay. You know, they cut across from the, right from a, they actually cut across the whole top of your face. And they uh, peel your face back and then they expose the brain, you know, the skull. And of course, then they cut a section out so they can go down in. And then they replace that section they cut out with a, with a titanium plate. I, you know, I just want to thank the both of you for being so open and honest, you know, and, and Kent, I don't, I probably told you this, but your book journey into blindness that gave me the uh, courage to write my own book and right. I owe that all to you. Mm -hmm. And could you just talk about your book and if, where people can get it if they want it? Well, if you can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or uh, iUniverse. Although I'm thinking about getting rid of them. I may at some, if we come up with any money, I want to do a little bit better deal of promoting it. And I may want to uh, rewrite it, add more to it. Because I, I want to add my Tai Chi into it. I'll tell you, if, Dennis, if you ever get a chance to have somebody who will take the time to teach you Tai Chi, it has improved my flexibility unbelievable. I have more flexibility now than I had when I was in my early 50s, late 40s. In fact, I see my uh, tight, uh, my master, uh, Mark Cachette, he's a seventh degree black belt in the Taekwondo, which makes him a master. And he has some Tai Chi routines. You know, they, they've been through 7,000 years, different different forms of Tai Chi from different families. Uh, basically, most Tai Chi is a slow motion martial arts, defensive martial arts. Uh, you have Qigong, which is another great medium. Qigong is the exercising of the Qi. You can almost do that like in, in a meditative form. That's, that's really good. Um, I... I and Tai Chi. Uh, most a lot of people do Tai Chi, but it, Tai Chi each movement in a form requires anywhere from five to seven different positionings of a distribution of weight, uh, the angle of your foot, the direction of your feet, the arms, the shoulders. Uh, it's quite complex if you do it right. Not only has it give him flexibility in his joints but it improved his balance tremendously because that was one of the problems when he lost his sight. He lost his balance because vision plays a big part in balance and the Tai Chi has given back his balance. You know, Kent, the first time I met you, I thought you were really cool. You were really funny, had a great sense of humor and I was slowly getting back to my normal self, if anybody even knows what normal is with me. And, <laughs> and you really did help me a lot. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'll tell you now, you really did help me a lot. And I'm sure you help a lot of people out 
who are going through tough times because they look at you and say, if he can be positive, if I'm going through something so little, how can I be feeling down? And so uh, you really are an inspiration to me. We have quite a, a few people. people we deal with regularly on Facebook. Thank you, Dennis. That, that brings tears to my eyes. Um, and you're right. Ken can be very positive. He can be very funny. He can. He's an amazing person. He absolutely is. And, and I, I know that you sit next to Dennis Delp. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. But um, but I really do appreciate you both of uh, both of you talking to me. And uh, uh, thanks well, once thank again. Thank you very and, much, and, Dennis. All right, uh, yeah, care, Dennis, guys. I have to thank you. Your, I'll put your phone number in my phone so I can call you occasionally. Absolutely. Would love to it's hear what, from you. It's what, 630? No, 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 don't say it on none. We'll, <laughs> we'll get it. All right, guys, take it easy. You Thanks, too. Thank Dennis. you, Dennis. Take Have care, a guys. wonderful Bye -bye. week.